So we are in the book of Romans, and I was joking, it says on the slide, Romans, it's, this series is going on from 2018 to 2019, and we have to get a move on, or otherwise we're going to have to add 2020 on there as well. Um, but I think we're on track, and so today we're looking at Romans chapter 9. We're moving into chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. So as for our tradition, if you're willing and able, if you'd stand with me as we read this together. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is God's word. You may be seated. Father, I just ask that you would teach us through this time, that you would transform us and that you would mold us, and you would help us to become more and more like you, not just today, but in every day to come. We thank you for this time that we have to look at your word, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we finished up Romans chapter 8. We had been there for a little while, I think it was about six weeks or so. And so now we're moving on to chapter 9, and as I was looking at it, chapter 9, it felt a little disjointed to me. Like in the transition, like I was having a hard time kind of tracking and jiving with Paul's transition. Um, obviously, when he wrote it, it wasn't necessarily like, this is now chapter 8 and this is now chapter 9. But in his letter as it's moving, I was having some difficulty transitioning with it. I don't know if anyone else is in that same boat. But if we take a look back at chapter 8, verse 33, kind of the first part there. It says there, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Against God's elect. God's elect is going to be the predominant theme of what we look at today in chapter 9. God's election, his his selection of the elect. That's going to be built upon here even more in the next coming weeks. But today its primary focus is on God's elect. Who is God's elect? So we come to the story here in in 9.1. It says, I am speaking the truth in Christ, Paul says. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. 
For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my, my kinsmen according to the flesh. My kinsmen according to the flesh. Here Paul is using, if it's hard, I have to remind myself, like when I come to this, like he uses double statements uh, where he's talking about, you know, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness. He kind of says the same thing twice. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish. He kind of says the same thing twice. And my natural thinking when I come across things like this is like with my children when they say, I didn't do that. I, I really, I really didn't do that. I really, it's like, wait a minute. It's like, why are you repeating yourself? You're making yourself look more guilty. Uh, but Paul is using kind of a, a radical form of the time of using two ways to state kind of the same thing to really highlight and maximize the importance of what he's saying. And, and his words, sorrow and unceasing anguish, would even kind of bring back uh, to the, the Israelites in the audience or the Israelites that are reading this letter, right, for the first time when he, when he wrote it. It's coming back in their mind, just maybe some, some imagery from Isaiah with the sorrow and the anguish. And then you realize what Paul is saying in verse 3. He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. If I could, God, if it were permissible, if it were possible, if it were allowed, I would be willing to be cut off from you for the sake of my brothers, the Israelites. I would forego salvation if you could spare them what they have to go through. I want that to sink in just a little bit. Who would you be willing to give up your salvation for? Who would you be willing to give up eternity for? Most of the times the question is phrased like, well, who would you be willing to lay down your life for? You know, and most of us would be like, well, I don't want to lay down my life for people I don't like. But like if I were to like jump in front of a bullet for my wife, right? And I saved her. I'm going to be dead and, you know, she'll mourn for years and years and years to come. And so will everybody else. But at the same time, this part of me is like, I know that, you know, my eternity is secure in who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. He's willing to give up that security. What comes after this life for the sake of his kinsmen? What drives a person to that point? He's had some examples of, of this throughout Scripture. Moses on Mount Sinai, God was done with the people. And Moses stepped up in between God and the people and said, No, if you're going to pour out your wrath, let it be on me. And God didn't. Jesus himself. Father, if there's a way for this cup to pass from me, let it. But if, if, if not, not my will, but your will. And now here we have Paul saying the same. Father, if, if I'll, I would forego salvation for the sake of my kinsmen. So I want you to try to imagine for a moment that you are a young Jewish Christian, emphasis on Jewish, 
that is encountering Paul's letter here for the first time. And I think this is, is necessary for us understanding where Paul's coming from. So here, you are, you are God's covenant people. God has made his promises to you and your forefathers that you have been chosen out of all the nations. You are God's chosen nation. That he is your God and you are his people. He's your God and you are his people. Just imagine the wonders and the things that you've seen. Smokes, uh, pillars of smoke and fire and seas being parted and miraculous things and walls tumbling down outwards just from trumpets blowing and more water being parted and more smoke and fire and provision from heaven. Just the wonders that you've seen. It's been given to you. God has given you the law. He's entrusted to you, your people, God's law. Everybody throughout the world is just running around scattering, trying to do whatever they think is best or whatever they think is right or whatever benefits them the most. And then God said, this is my law, and I've given it to you. I've entrusted it to you. He's given you true worship. He's given you the tabernacle. He's given you the temple, and he's taught you how to worship. He's given you the patriarchs. You know, in Scripture we see often it refers to that I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those guys are your descendants. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says it there, the Israelites, for to them belong the adoption, the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Jesus is from your lineage. Who is God? That's who you are. I remember from my, uh, my Bible school days uh, talking about just the importance of there's three primary things that the Israelites would wrap their identity around at this time, and that was Torah, temple, and land. You know, and it fits with this. God has given you his word. God's word has been given to you and your ancestors and your people. He's given you the temple. He's given you the tabernacle. At first, well, it's traveling around and then a temple in a more permanent location where God's spirit, God's presence rests. And the land that he's promised to give them, the land flowing with milk and honey. In a more literal translation, it would be the land flowing with bacon and more bacon. I don't know. Milk and honey, all right? That was appealing at the time. They had the promised land, right? It was, it was, this is a major piece of your identity and your heritage. Now imagine you come across, as you're reading the letter, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. It's been kind of our theme verse for the, the whole look of, through Romans. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There's a salvation that's for everybody, not just for the Jews, not just for the Israelites, but for the, the Greeks, the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And then you come in, in chapter 2, verse 25 through 29, Paul's talking about circumcision. And he's talking about how circumcision is an inwardly act and that it's, it's a heart matter. And you're telling this to a person that's, that's reading going, I have been circumcised. And you're telling me 
that this, what I just did, like this, this whole thing, that that really wasn't all that important. Like, what, hold on, because Paul tells this story about, you know, there's the guy that's been circumcised that doesn't obey the law, and the guy that hasn't been circumcised that does obey the law, which is doing right. And you're standing over going, standing over going, the one that's been circumcised. Thank you very much. And then we have in chapter 5, verse 20, when he's talking about how the law, this law that's been given to you and your people, this law that's been given to you, all it's done is allow trespass to increase. That's all it's done. And then in chapter 7, verses 9 through 13, it's talking about how that the law is kind of really just helps stimulate sin, and all it's really done is produce death. It's produced death. Now, maybe this is your second read-through of this letter that Paul has written. And you've already looked at chapter 11 where he's talked about there's a hardening that's coming of Israel's heart. And this hardening, that your, your opposition to the gospel has made you enemies with God. Now, I don't know about you, I'm starting to feel a little bit less special. And then how would you respond to this? This dude's a wacko. This dude's full of it. I don't care. Maybe you accept it. And this is where, you know, everyone was talking about the class that is going to be starting up next week here during the second hour, dealing with shame and grief. I think Paul would have enjoyed attending that class. Because I believe that the the sorrow and the anguish that Paul has talked about in the beginning that he feels for his people is because he understands the challenges and he remembers his own response to it. Because what was his response to the, the gospel, this good news, all this amazing things that Paul has been proclaiming throughout the first eight chapters of Romans? What was his response to it when he first encountered it? If you have your Bibles, if you want to turn back with me to Acts chapter 8. Verses 1 through 3. It's going to be on the screen. Now, we don't have any recorded uh, interactions of Jesus and Paul until Paul encounters Jesus on the Damascus Road, but I can't imagine that Paul hadn't heard of Jesus before. Paul, his name before, was, before Paul was Saul, and he was a, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was an elite in the, the Jewish religion. He had studied under a rabbi, you know, it's like he was, he was this, and so any self-respecting Jew of that stature at this time would have been in Jerusalem on Passover to celebrate it appropriately. The same Passover that Jesus celebrated with his disciples and then was turned over to the religious leaders to be flogged and then handed over to the Romans and be crucified. Paul was there. He was in the area. I'm sure he had heard of some rumblings or maybe seen from a distance. We don't have any interactions before. But here in Acts chapter 8, helps if I turn my Bible to the correct page as well. Verses 1 says, And Saul, that is Paul, approved of his execution. Stephen had just been stoned to death. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul 
was ravaging the church and entering house after house after house after house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison and some to death. This was Paul's first response. Lock them up. Get them out of here. Kill them. He has great sorrow and anguish. So then he deals with that question. Did the word of God fail? In verse 6 it says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Had God, God's word failed? Had his promises to you, his people, had he failed in his promises to you? No. As Paul would write in earlier in the letter, by no means. He doesn't use that expression here. But no. And then he goes on to deal with uh, their identity. Because their identity has been rooted in their history, their traditions, their genealogy. And he says that not all descendants of Israel belong to Israel. You're not a member of God's family based upon your national identity. He's telling this to the Israelites. We can tell this to us today. You're not a member of God's family because you live in the United States of America and we're a Christian nation. Some of us right now might be looking around going like, I don't feel like we're in a Christian nation at all. But, you know, it says in God we trust on the money, right? If we trust God on the money, we must be good there, right? And, you know, you ask a lot of people, some people will just say they're a Christian and their, their thinking behind that is because they live in a Christian nation. And here Paul's saying it does not matter who you nationally identify with. It doesn't make you a member of God's family. It made me think I have to do it just a little bit because football season is upon us, for those of you that know, those of you that pay attention, right? I always joke with my children that I, I will judge my success in parenting off of two things. I want my children to love the Lord and love the Browns. And if they do both these things... I have achieved victory. And, you know, if one day my Lord and Savior will say, well done, Matt, in raising your children. One of, those, one, of those, one of those is true. One of those is just a little wishful side piece I'm trying to tuck in there that's a little selfishly motivated, right? But most people, how, do we have Seattle Seahawks fans that are around here? We got a couple. Now, so we have a couple of Seattle Seahawks fans. Now, I've noticed this, that there are a lot of Seattle Seahawks fans in the Seattle area, in the state of Washington. If I live in the state of Washington, does that mean I'm supposed to be a Seattle Seahawks fan? You say yes, because those are the true fans that speak up, right? But can I live in Washington and not be a Seattle Seahawks fan? Yeah. Living in Washington does not make you a Seattle Seahawks fan. I know people that don't live in this state that are probably more diehard Seahawks fans than most of you that attest to be fans. Just as I am a Cleveland Browns fan, and I have only ever set my feet upon the holy soil of Cleveland, Ohio, once in my life. 
because my first anniversary, my wife is lovely, we got to go to a Cleveland Browns game. That's the only time I've ever been to Ohio. Was that one time? They did lose. <sighs> Evan, it was 0-0 at halftime, and I was so ecstatic. And then the uh, Baltimore Ravens scored a touchdown, and I knew the game was over. That's the bronze for you. Right? So, but where you're at, your location doesn't assign your team. Your, where you belong doesn't assign you to God's family. It doesn't assign you. And then he talks about, you know, not all uh, children of Abraham are his offspring. You're not part of God's family based upon who your parents are. And that's where you get a lot of people, like, you know, one of the major transitions for youth, like, you know, your middle school, high school years, is making your faith your own. You, at this point, have been, you know, you've been brought to church because your parents have made you. Will you continue going when it's your turn to decide what I get to do on Sunday morning? Do I want to sleep in? That's appealing. Or am I going to go to church on Sunday morning? But it's not about your parents' faith, or your grandparents' faith, or your aunt's faith, or your uncle's faith, or your wife's faith, or any, anyone's faith, or what any, you know, oh, my grandfather one day, he was, he was a pastor. So that's covered at least like five or six generations of us. Right? Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And then we encounter a but. He says, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Through Isaac, your offspring will be named. It takes a little bit of assumed backstory here as, as Paul's talking about this. Abraham, and the promise is there in verse 9. If we jump in, it says the promise says right here. For the, this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. This is what God has told Abraham. You're going to have a son within a year. And Abraham's really old and his wife's really old. And they're like, this isn't really possible. So they try to take matters into their own hands. And so Sarah says, hey, honey, why don't you sleep with my maidservant, Hagar? And there we go. We'll have a kid. And they do. And he's their son and his name's Ishmael. But this was not what God intended. This was not what he had promised. This is not what he had said. So then Isaac is born. And Isaac is the son of promise. Here we have two, two boys, two people that can claim relationship, that can claim national identity to that. But the one that is a son is the son of promise. The one that's a member of the family is the one of promise. And then in verse 10 through 13, he goes in a little bit further and says, It's not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So here he uses another example of Rebekah. So, so we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? So now he uses a story of Isaac's sons, who are both of the same mom and dad, 
not this whole Abraham situation with maidservants and other children and lineages and lines coming out. They were talking, this is Abraham with his wife saying that there's one that's going to be serving the other. There's one that is loved and there's one that is hated. The one that is of promise is the one that is of offspring. It's the one that is in God's family. And before either, and this is told before either of them are born, before either of them have done anything good or bad. And here we have God's election. God's sovereignty is at work. And it's not based upon what anyone has done. It's not based upon any of that. It's based upon him who calls. It says so right here, because of him who calls. Your identity, brothers and sisters, is not tied to where you live or who your parents or grandparents are or whatever amazing things they might have done. It's not tied to, you know, your identity is not tied to your your health, wealth, your bank account, your status, your looks, your popularity, any of that. Your identity is not tied to that. Your identity, your value, your purpose, your mission, everything about who you are comes from the one who calls you. Or maybe more appropriately would be said, the one who comes calling. The one who comes calling. In Revelations chapter 3, verse 20, it paints this picture well. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Here he comes knocking. Knocking at that door. Him who calls. There are a lot of things that can come knocking on our doors. A lot of things that come calling in our life. A lot of things that we let in the door. For some of us, we might be in that boat where we've let Jesus in. We've let Jesus in and we're sitting down and we're eating with him. And we're talking about the exciting things that are coming up. The things that are coming up in our lives and the things that are coming up in the future here at church and in our children's lives and other people's lives and the things that are going on and the excitement of the mission that is at hand. We enjoy relationship with the one that came knocking. Some of you here today might be hearing a knock or a calling on the voice of Jesus in your life, but you're kind of like looking through the peephole where you're like, who is that? What's going on here? And you're curious. My encouragement to you would be to open the door, to let him in. There will be a time when your choice, your ability to choose, will end. And that's where it always seems to get a little hairy and a little murky with dealing with topics of election, like God's chosen. Because throughout Scripture, it's very clear that God chose you. He wants you. He's pursued you. We sang about it. We read about it. We hear about it. He's pursued you. He wants you. But there's always that element that you've been given a choice to open the door, to respond. And will you do it? My encouragement would be to not wait for tomorrow, because tomorrow's not guaranteed. Later today is not guaranteed. If I keep speaking long enough, we might not make it out of the sermon alive. And maybe there are some of you that you just you open the door for everybody else, but not for Jesus. You just turn up your music really loud and party and enjoy life as it is, and you have no need for Jesus. You have no need for God. And you invite everybody in the world else in. Come on in. Come on in. And you just leave them on the doorstep. 
I'm not sure which boat you're in specifically. I don't know. But I find it interesting that we have a choice in this process. And in my, my Bible, I don't know if yours has the same heading. You know, it's been inserted there later. The heading on chapter 9 here says, God's sovereign choice. What God has chosen is that he has called you. He's come calling to you. He wants you. He pursues you. He pursues you. He wants you. We've been given the choice. How will we respond? How will we respond? And it would be my hope and my prayer that all of us would respond in that way, that we would all be God's family, that we would all be God's children, that we would be members of his family. As Paul says, based upon what Christ has done. Not based upon the works or the people or the people that you know or the relationships or where you live, because on what he's done and that he knows you and you know him. My prayer would be that we've all made that choice and we all enjoy sitting at the table and eating with him and looking forward to the things that he has in store for us to pursue today, tomorrow, and in the future. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for today. Father, I thank you that you stand at the door and you knock and that you call out to us and that you pound vigorously on the door louder and louder and louder. And Father, for some of us, it seems like you just burst through the door and didn't give us a choice. Father, I thank you that you have pursued us with that that never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Father, we thank you that you, in the great romance that we have with you, that you have said, I love you first, Father, that you, while we were still sinners, you died for us. And you stepped up, stepped, stepped out on that limb and said, I love you. Father, you wait for our response. Father, I thank you that you are willing to do that for us. Father, your love is so immense. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.